This past week, we celebrated what I think should be a holiday. Uh, big, big day. Did you notice something happened this week? It happened? It was big? The first day of spring? That was here. Like, I don't know about you, but like, I spent all winter like, oh man, like, I wish it was spring. Like, I'm just kind of like, oh man, it's winter. Uh, like, I like Christmas, and I enjoy it when it snows every now and then, but I love it when it starts to warm up. I love it when daylight savings uh, ends. Is that what it did, or did it begin? It ended, and like, you know, the, it start, the sun starts to stay up an extra hour every night, and it gets later and later, and man, I love it, I love it, I love it. There's so many things in um, our life that, like for me with spring, we look forward to. We just look forward to this new thing to happen, and uh, so there, there's no one in my life who exemplifies this more than my nine-year-old daughter, Savannah. She is the queen of being excited about stuff. Like, she can be excited about just about anything, and it's like, on a scale of one to 10, she sits at about a nine and a half, 10, all the time. Like, whatever it is, like, what, we got new toothpaste? What? This is the best day ever, this is great. It's the kind with two different colors mixed in. Like, I'm not even joking, like, that's like a real, story. Like, I've seen my daughter do this. Um, and she gets really excited. So she, like, she writes things on her calendar, and she gets real pumped. And the day that it happens, like, whatever it is she's looking forward to, no, no joke, she will wake up at, like, 5.30 in the morning, 6 o'clock, get completely dressed, come in my room and stand next to me on my bed, like, tap me on the forehead, like, Dad, is it time to go? I'm like, no, like, we're leaving. That's tonight. Okay, I'll, I'll just wait in the living room. <laughs> like, what? She's in there like fixing cereal. She's ready. She's pumped. Um, I wish I could learn this excitement factor from her. We recently had a big reveal to our kids that uh, in a few weeks, in April, we're going to be going to Orlando uh, and going to Legoland. And like, if, yeah, yeah. If you know my kids, man, you're like, they, they love some Lego and they've never been to Florida and they're pumped. We were blessed. We had some good friends just give us, you know, some days at a timeshare there. And so like, it's a it's like a very inexpensive vacation and our kids were pumped. So we kind of like, we figured some stuff out about it and then we finally revealed it to our, to our kids and they were just amped about it. And my daughter was so excited. She was like, oh, like we're, and on the way we're stopping in Savannah. Her name is Savannah. And she like convinced that like, I've got to go there. Like I probably should live there because it's named after me. So, so we're going, she's like, yeah. So, and so a little later, like I go back in her room and she's sitting on her bed and, and she's got her like a little journal open. She's got these notebooks. Like she, you might have a special journal. She's got like 15 different journals. They all have purposes. And some of them are like so thick because of stuff that's glued into them. And it's crazy. Um, but she's writing, so I'm like, what are you writing down? And at the top, it says our trip to Orlando. <laughs> she's like making lists of things she wants to pack and things. This was like, you know, three weeks ago. And uh, I'm like, Wow, I'm probably not going to pack till like right before we get in the car. Uh, but you, I wish I could learn how to be so excited about things like my daughter. And there are a lot of things that we get amped about. But the, the most exciting moment, at least for me, is that moment right before the thing happens. Maybe you've experienced this. Like uh, as a kid, maybe it was um, Christmas Eve and you just couldn't sleep. You're laying there, you're, you're so excited, you couldn't sleep. Maybe you played on a sports team that made it to like um, the finals or like regionals or state, and like you, you're in the locker room that last moment before you run out onto the field or onto the court, and you're so pumped because it's here. The thing like you dreamed about all season or maybe for years, it's here, you're pumped. There's this moment, I mean, there, there's this moment where you're like, the hour has come. Like we are, up, it is upon us. We can go, this thing we've been looking forward to. We waited so long. And here it is. It's that excitement. In fact, it's that hour, that moment, those few moments that I want to settle in on this morning. That joy that comes with knowing something amazing is about to happen. 
And to do that, we're going to be reading uh, and, and kicking off a new teaching series through the book uh, of John chapter 17, the chapter of John chapter 17. John chapter 17, uh, we're starting a four-week teaching series, and the series is called When Jesus Prayed. Because in John chapter 17, Jesus says this prayer. It's actually called by many the greatest prayer ever prayed. Some call it the Lord's Prayer, and maybe you've heard something called the Lord's Prayer, uh, you know, our Father who art in heaven, you know, so that, that kind of a, a prayer, uh, that was a model prayer that Jesus gave, and it's also called the Lord's Prayer, but this one's known as the Lord's Prayer also, because this is, as Jesus is about to go through with the thing he came to do, to, to do the work of the cross, um, it's about to happen. This is the prayer he prays, and the things he prays about are pretty interesting. He prays for himself and for God's glory. He prays for his disciples that are right there around him, and he prays for someone else. He prays for the church. He prays for people who haven't even begun to believe in him yet. In fact, included in that group would be me and you. He prays for us, and that we know just before he goes to be on the cross, we were on his mind. Incredible. As we get in this week, uh, we're going to eventually read through the entire chapter of John 17. We're going to do a little piece this morning and the rest over the next three three weeks. But I want to talk about the thing that Jesus came to do, the work of the cross. What is that? You know, we're all at different places in our spiritual walk. In fact, I think a lot of people attend church for a long time and don't fully realize, like, what church is the celebration of, what Christianity is. And basically, in four weeks, uh, we're going to be having Easter Sunday. Can you believe that? Easter's almost here. Like, I feel like we just did New Year's. It's almost Easter. But in, in like four weeks, we're going to be having Easter. Easter is the celebration of Jesus doing what he came to do, which is this. God in the flesh. God looked down, and he saw that all of humanity was, was awash in sin, and they needed some way to reconnect with God. And so God puts on flesh, and he comes and he lives a human life. And while he's here for about 33 years, he grows up and he has a family uh, with his mom and his dad and he experiences uh, pain and hurt and, and joy and a celebration, all human experiences. And then on the other end of it, uh, he gets to the end of his life. And he says, in order to pay the price for sin in all of humanity, I am going to give my life. That's the message of, of Christianity. Now he dies. That's where the cross comes in. It was a Roman crucifixion instrument, right? He dies. But the beauty of the cross is that he didn't stay dead because God, being uh, who he is, <laughs> life, light, creation, that's who God is, um, and the power of all those things, Jesus didn't stay dead. Three days later, he rose from the dead, and that's what we celebrate. Actually, that's why church is on Sunday. Did you know that? Early Christians began to have church on Sunday because that was the day of the week when Jesus rose from the dead. That's why we have communion every single week at our church because it's a remember, remembrance of the body and the blood of Jesus because Jesus is alive. And so this is the thing that Jesus is about to go do. If you've got a Bible, uh, I'd like to invite you to open it up. We're gonna be in John chapter 17. You can, of course, use an app or something, scroll down, or if you need a Bible, we've got a little shelf here by the door. Feel free to go grab one now or at least get one on your way out. They're free. Take them home with you. Everybody needs a good readable version of the Bible. But we're going to be in John chapter 17. Uh, John is one of the biographies of the life of Jesus, and it's actually one of the easiest to read. John, uh, he writes in really simple language. He talks about things like, uh, about things like light 
and things about darkness and like light and darkness. I can understand that. He doesn't use huge theological terms like someone like Paul might would use. It's very simple to understand. And as we get to the end of his book, we find John writing about Jesus in a very interesting situation. Okay, so we're going to be reading John chapter 17. We're going to read the whole thing over the course of the next month. But today we're only going to read the first verse, John 17, 1. But I got to tell you what, I cannot read it to you yet because... We have got to understand what Jesus is going through when he hits this moment, okay? This may have been one of the most exhausting weeks of anybody's life that's ever lived. Jesus, just a week earlier, less than a week earlier, had shown up in Jerusalem to great pomp and circumstance. There had been a rumor going around that this guy, Jesus, uh, might be some kind of political messiah, that he was going to come in and set things right between the Jewish nation and the Roman government. There had been kind of a figurehead king set over the Jews and all kinds of other Roman politics, and a lot of the people were sick of it. Can anyone imagine what it might be to be sick of a government? You know, This is way worse than anything we might have ever experienced in American history. And so the people had heard that Jesus has this clout. He's got these, uh, this ability to command an audience, and maybe he'll be our king. So he rides into town, he's riding a donkey because he knows to show up in style, and he gets there, and the whole you know, town shows up, and they just fill the streets, and, and they do a very political thing. They have these palm branches, these fronds that they, they wave, and this is the way you would like open the coronation of a king, and they're singing uh, his praises and saying, come and save us now, and they, they're loving this guy, Jesus. Now, the crowds are all for Jesus now. It's not going to take long for them to turn on him. It'll happen later in the week, but in this moment, Jesus is just, just inundated with attention. If you've ever been the center of attention, it can be exhausting. And so from there, he goes and begins having these meetings with people. Shortly after that, he goes to a friend's house just a few miles outside of town, and they have a banquet in his honor. And he's meeting people there, and he's doing all kinds of things, and people are wanting to talk to him. People wanting to be healed by him, because that's something he had shown that he could do. And on and on it goes. He's got to entertain, entertain, entertain. Another day of the week, he comes back to Jerusalem. And there are these Jewish leaders, particularly the Sadducees. The Sadducees were the particular group of people who were in charge of the temple. And they were kind of in charge in Jerusalem. They weren't really big fans of Jesus. In fact, most of the religious leaders were not. And they begin to grill him with question after question after question. And Jesus, from sunup to sundown for this whole week, has been just busy. He's exhausted. Not only that, this is a holiday week. They had a holiday called Passover. Passover, comparing it to something that we would do would be like if we combined like Christmas and Easter and the 4th of July into one holiday, and then we all just went to like Washington, D.C., like every year. It was just like, we're all going to make this big pilgrimage to like a, a central place where stuff began. Like this is, this is kind of what Passover was like for them, but it was also combined that with like a super religious and spiritual holiday. And so you can imagine there were late nights and there were parties and there was the stress of all that. And when we land with Jesus on this Friday evening, in fact, you can look back a few chapters. We're going to be in John 17, but if you look back at John 13, they've begun the Passover meal. The meal was a big part of the celebration. Lots of preparation, lots of uh, ceremony, and he's going through all that, and they've, they've, they've now finished the meal. It's not done for Jesus yet. Jesus then begins to share some of the hardest news he has to share with his disciples. He's like, look, I've kind of indicated to you guys in the past that I was going to give my life, that I was going to die. That's about to happen. It's about to happen. In fact, one of you is going to betray me, turn me over to these guys who don't like me. All the disciples have a big row about it and say, no, surely that's not going to happen. It's never going to happen. But sure enough, this one guy does. Judas turns his back on Jesus. He leaves the room. And now Jesus knows that Judas has left. And he's going to go turn him over to these kind of crooked officials 
Jesus, I'm sure, in his divine nature, was probably even aware that they were very, in this very moment on their way back to arrest him. With all out on his heart, with all of that on his mind, with all of that on his body physically being exhausted. He gets to the end of this meal. You know the end of a really big meal, like Thanksgiving or just a really big lunch, and you're just like, I need a nap. And Jesus has just hit this moment. And he, in, in a very uh, traditional Jewish prayer posture, lifts his hands. He looks to the sky. And he says what we see in John chapter 17, verse 1. After he said all this, he looked towards heaven and he prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. The hour has come. I remember my, our first kid, Silas, being born. It's crazy. Uh, it's getting close to 13 years ago that that happened. Uh, he's so much bigger now. The dude beat me in driveway basketball yesterday. Like we, He got to 21 before I did. And I, I, I wanted to re, rematch. And then like I was afraid I might not win the second game. I did, uh, by the way. But like he's grown up. He's grown up. But, and so like looking back, it's, like, it's hard to remember that he was a baby at one point. But I tell you what, I will never forget the day he was born. I mean, it was my first kid. And I, but the crazy thing is I remember like feeling that it would never get here. And if you've ever had a kid before, especially you ladies who have given birth, you're like, nine months is the longest period of time ever. It is just never, ever over. And I remember that nine months going by like the slowest time of my life, like cold molasses pouring out of a jar, you know, it's like, man, is it ever going to get here? And we go to the doctor's appointments and she was like, yeah, you know, he's getting big, he's growing anytime now. I'm like, are you sure? It's taking forever. But the day that it was time, it was September 13th, 2005, and my wife had these feelings, and she was like, I think that it's time. And so we called the doctor, and she was like, hey, listen, uh, it's not time yet, based on the questions that you're answering, answering. I'm going to tell you what, call me in the morning, because it's probably going to be time in the morning. And so we got off the phone, and it was... Uh, you know, it was not much sleeping that night. Lindsay was in a lot of pain, and I, I'm sure that her night was way worse than mine was, but we were both, didn't, neither one of us got very much sleep that night. And, but the morning came, and I remember there was this moment where she kind of poked me in the back. I guess I had dozed off. I don't know. I was trying to stay awake. And she was like, it's time. <laughs> and I was like, it's time? She's like, it's, it's time. I'm like, it's time. You know, and it's, it's just like the TV, you know, like you run out, you're like, yeah. And, and it was time. And our, a lot of stuff happened. It was a blur after that. And just a few hours later, it was like, wow, a baby got born. And he's my son. And it was, it was amazing. I'll never forget that. There's this moment just before something major happens. The hour has come. Jesus, after this long week, after this long 33 years of just walking through human life, says the hour, the time has come. And this was going to be a long night for Jesus too. He was fully aware that he wouldn't be getting any sleep that night. Pretty soon he'd be arrested. There would be a bogus trial, uh, actually illegal according to their laws in many ways. Uh, But he's going to be found guilty of uh, just some stuff that they didn't like. They, They said he was blaspheming, which means that you're claiming to have the authority of God, which is... Yes, a really bad thing unless you happen to actually be God. And so that was Jesus' situation. Eventually he's nailed to a cross and crucified. Have you ever 
stop to think about what all of this means in the scope of all of world history. What does it mean the hour has come? What hour? What hour? Like, what are we waiting for? I didn't even know we were waiting for something. What hour? I don't know if you've ever stopped to think about, like, the grand picture of the whole biblical story. Maybe you have. Maybe you've been in church for a long time. Maybe you haven't. Maybe that you're actually like, actually, that's why I'm here today. I came to church. This is my first time, and I'm just curious. What's in the Bible? You're here on a good day. We're doing the whole thing. We're doing the whole Bible in the next few minutes. you got to kind of hop in a time machine, and you got to go all the way back to the beginning of time to understand what the hour has come means. We're going to flip all the way back to the book of Genesis. If you got one, you can do that. It'll be the screen here, too. We're going to be looking at only one verse. But in Genesis, in the first chapter, God creates all of the heavens and the earth, and it's a beautiful thing. God's in charge, and he's showing it. Near the end of that little section, he creates his prized, treasured possession, humankind, mankind. He creates uh, Adam and Eve, and he creates them in God's image, and it's a beautiful thing, and they have this really intimate relationship, God and mankind, and they're walking, it says, in the cool of the garden, and they're spending time together, but then something breaks. The devil shows up in the form of a serpent. He tempts Eve to eat the fruit from a tree that God told them not to eat from. She eats the fruit She entices her husband to come over and eat it too. By the way, Adam, equally guilty. He could have stepped up and said, no, we shouldn't have done this, but he did. And at the end of that, God is left forced to discipline his children. And as he's talking to them, he he makes it clear to them, listen, I am holy and pure. I'm set apart. And now because of your disobedience, you've got sin in your life and you as much as I want to be with you, I can't. Our, our, our natures are no longer compatible. We're going to have to set up something different. So he gets them out of the garden. And he spends a minute talking to Adam and Eve, and then he looks at the serpent. And he says something to, serpent, to the serpent. But here's the thing. As he's kind of separating man from God in this moment, this isn't the end. In fact, in this message he gives to the serpent is the first glimmer of hope in that story. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, we get this little couple lines of poetic, poetic writing. It says this, God's talking to, to Satan. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. That's it. What does that mean? It's kind of like super poetic and something like, uh, you know, like the, the old super emotional uh, pre-Gothic punk rock artistic version of myself would have written in middle school. Like, I will crush his head. You know, I don't know. It doesn't make a lot of sense in the general, like the, the, the immediate context. In fact, when people read it early on, there were a lot of speculation. What does that even mean? But what's cool about this is as time went on, it became clearer and clearer. This little poetic piece seems to be the very first mention of God's plan to set things right between God and man. He wants for us to be reunited with him. God doesn't take pleasure in, in our discipline. He doesn't, he doesn't, there's this image that people have of God, of him kind of sitting on a cloud, throwing lightning bolts down at the world, and his goal is to send everyone to hell unless they conform. That's not what we get from the Bible about God. What we learn about God in scripture is that God loves us. He wants more than anything to be reunited with us, and here is the plan. And this first little passage from Genesis 3.15 is the first seed of that hope. Um, this passage is called the Proto-Evangelium. 
Proto-evangelium. It it means the first gospel. Proto meaning like first. And evangelium is the same word that we get gospel from. The good message or the good news. This is the first glimmer of the gospel. The first little piece we get saying that there is hope. And guess who planted this seed? God himself. So there we are in our time machine. Genesis 3.15. There's a better plan coming, but the hour has not yet come. You fast forward a little bit, time progresses, the world grows up, some people are born, and we meet a guy in Genesis chapter 12, a guy named Abraham. When we first meet him, he's called Abram. He's also Abraham, same person. Abraham was a a shepherd. He was uh, fairly well-respected. He was a pretty wealthy guy. Uh, One thing we know about him, that he was super hospitable and had high amounts of integrity in the way that he dealt with people. And so for those reasons and maybe others, Abraham had caught God's attention, And so God leans in on Abraham one day and speaks to him in an audible voice. And he tells him, Abraham, you're a very important part of a plan I have for the world. Let's read what it says. Genesis chapter 12 now, verses 1 through 4. The Lord had said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. And you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. And Abram was 75 years old when he set out for Haran. God's plan, as he continues to unveil it, was to involve this family, the family uh, of a guy named Abraham. Now, Abraham had no idea how big God's plan was. In fact, at the time, Abraham was like, I don't, I don't even have any sons to pass on my name right now. So I don't know how you're going to make a great family out of me. I don't know how you're going to bless the whole world through my family lineage. But God's like, trust me. And he did. God sees in Abraham ability to have faith. And through that faith, God blesses his family. So he has children. And the family begins to grow. And Abraham's life is a roller coaster. Man, this guy can't get his mess straight for the life of him. Like, he is traveling all around. He does things all wrong. He lies about some stuff. He gets his family in trouble a couple different times. And yet, God looks at Abraham and says, you know what, though? I'm going to use you. Now, what's cool that we learn about Abraham and and actually all of Abraham's family is, is how just straight up, just jacked up and messed up their family was. Yet, God continues to work through them. As we learn the life of Abraham and his family, we find that God has a very deliberate principle that he lives by, and that is this. He will use broken people to share his message with the world. That's his deal. That's what he does time and time again. The plan is in motion, but the hour has still not yet come. And so this promise is passed on from Abraham to his son, from his son to his son, from his son to his son. It goes on for generations and generations. And guess what? All those families were pretty much messed up. And you read through those stories. Like, if you ever want to feel bad about your jacked up family, just read, like, the book of Genesis. And you're like, man, whoo, we are actually pretty well put together. We're like a model family here. We're doing a pretty good job. Because these people in the book of Genesis were not perfect. But consistently, generation after generation, someone would rise up. And they would carry the mantle of that promise that had been given to their great-grandfather Abraham and their great-great-grandfather Abraham. And it goes on and on and on. But guess what? The hour had not yet come. God's plan was still in motion. And this continues. As Abraham's offspring grow into the thousands and then over a million, and then eventually God allows them to establish a nation, a nation that becomes known as Israel, the Israelites. They get a king, they've got all kinds of government, they have an army, uh, 
And just like their forefathers, they're all jacked up too. I mean, they're up and down. It's a roller coaster. It's a hot mess. They're fighting wars. They're winning wars. They're losing wars. They're trusting God sometimes. Other times they're turning into and worshiping pagan gods of the nations around them. And it goes up and down. But every generation, groups rise up and people decide to have faith in God. And they remember the promise that was made to their father Abraham. And they are faithful. As the nation begins to grow, God starts to send people to them in the form of prophets who come from God with a message. God hasn't forgot the promise that he made to your father, Abraham. He's gonna bless the whole world through him, through you. Keep faithful, stay strong. There's one point where we meet a, a, a king who rises up, his name is David. And a prophet named Nathan comes to David. And he says, you can read about it in, in 2 Samuel chapter seven. I'm just gonna kind of summarize it. He says this, he says, listen, David, God's going to establish through your household an eternal kingdom. And there will be a day where there is always going to be a king on the throne of your family line. Now, if you're David, you're like, well, that's sweet. <laughs> that's awesome, just like Abraham before him. He had no idea how big this promise was. But the time had not yet come. You can read more about it in Jeremiah 23. He talks about how this king is going to rise up and is going to save God's people from something. They didn't quite understand what yet. But they knew that God's promise was faithful and they held on, but the hour had not yet come. And then if you fast forward history a little bit more, we get this one guy, Isaiah. Now I think there's a lot of different prophets who contributed to the book of Isaiah, but in Isaiah chapter 53, we get this word from the book of Isaiah. And, and when you listen to this, man, it's written about someone called basically a suffering servant. And it's a prophecy about some figure in human history that's going to kind of do this act, and something's going to happen, and I want you to hear it, especially if you've been in church for a while and you know the Easter story. Listen to these words that Isaiah penned. This is hundreds of years before Jesus was even born. Isaiah 53, 4 through 7. Surely he took up our pain. He bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds, we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquities of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, Yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Isaiah wrote this prophecy hundreds of years before the events of the Easter week celebration. But man, if you read the story of Jesus going to the cross, it's like a play-by-play -play description of the event. God's hand was in his promise. And he was letting his people know that the hour is coming. But for Isaiah, the hour had not yet come. And then God comes to the world in the form of Jesus. You can read it about it at the beginning of the book of Matthew. But we meet him as an adult in the book of John. In John 1, 29, 
we see Jesus enter the scene. John the Baptist, who was a prophet in his own right, is out uh, teaching and preaching at the Jordan River, and he's got some disciples of his own, and he's telling everybody about God's plan to save the world. And Jesus walks up on him, and John, from that river, looks up, and he sees Jesus coming, and he says this, and I believe that in every word that he says right here, that he is directly connecting Jesus with this passage from Isaiah, chapter 52 and 53. He says, look, it's the Lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world. And in that moment, Jesus comes down to John. John baptizes him to inaugurate Jesus' earthly ministry. The hour's getting closer Jesus spends about three and a half years traveling. Uh, he, he teaches, he preaches, he does miracles. Along the way, he starts to uh, call to specific men and women and saying to them, I want you to follow me. I want you to be my disciple. Among that group, 12 rise to the top as his closest disciples. These are going to be the men who eventually go out to establish the church. And he shows them by signs and wonders, listen, you can trust me, you can believe me. He raises people from the dead. He heals people of incurable diseases. He shows compassion to people who no one else is showing compassion to. He sets the bar for what it means to live a life that honors God. And then he rides into Jerusalem on a donkey. And the people sing his praises. And then he goes to all these parties. And he has all these moments. And the Passover meal arrives. And he sits in an upper room with his disciples. And he explains to them the plan that God has. And they say, Jesus, don't leave us. Please don't leave us. And Jesus says, I have got to go. Because if I don't go, the advocate won't come. He talks about the Holy Spirit is going to come. And it's like, having God's Holy Spirit in your life is going to be even better than having me here in the flesh. Because God will be with you in the Spirit. And anyone who believes in him will be saved from their sins and be united with God's Spirit. And you can walk with him and live with him. And we can reunite like God had us in the beginning, in the garden. And he's exhausted and after Jesus said this, he looked towards heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son, that your son may glorify you. Wow. Uh, I had no idea that all that was packed into this one sentence. <laughs> To think of the history that God set into motion so that we could know him, so that we could be reunited with him, and that God in all his glory, knowing what's happening with the constellations and the rotations of planets and moons and in, and in, and in uh, galaxies that we don't even know about yet, God having all that knowledge comes into our midst and says, I love these people so much that I'm going to become human Give my life. The hour has come. And the hour had come. And as you think about it, I got a couple questions as we wrap up today. First question, first, first thought. First thought. Please come back over the next three weeks as we unpack the rest of this prayer. The greatest prayer ever prayed. Jesus has got you on his mind before he goes to the cross. And we're preparing ourselves for Easter. Uh, a lot of Christian groups don't even like celebrate Easter because, um, because it's easy for us to make like the, a big deal out of one day and forget it the rest of the year. We're not going to do that. It's, it's cool to celebrate Easter, and I like eggs, and that's cool too. But we, we can't just think about this like once a year. 
this is an everyday thing. This is a celebration that God loved us so much that anyone who believes in him doesn't have to perish eternally and spiritually, but can have eternal life through Jesus. So that's my first thought. Come back. Bring friends. It's going to be good, even before Easter. I hope that you plan on being here on Easter Sunday. I hope that you plan on bringing friends. Uh, it's, it's traditionally like the most likely day that your friend who doesn't go to church anywhere else would come to church. Why? It's Easter. You're supposed to go to church, right? Make my grandma happy, right? Come, let's fill this room up with our friends who don't do church, and let's express to them the love that God has for them so deeply. That's the first thing. Second thing, second thing. I want us to know this. Though the hour had come for Jesus to do the thing that God had prepared in advance for him to do, I want you to know this. God prepared a long time ago an hour for you. There is an hour which each one of us will have, and maybe you've already had it, and maybe it's coming yet. Maybe you've had a few of those hours go by, and you just let them fly by. An hour where you can say, I accept this message for my own. This is my story. I'm part of God's plan. There's an hour where each one of us get the opportunity to say, am I going to lean into God's story and accept his grace or not? And I want to encourage you, if you haven't done that, if you haven't taken the time to say, I need, I need to profess that I want to be a Christian, the hour might be here for you. It, it might be that you are kind of new to Christianity, new to church, and you're like, well, I still have a lot of questions. I'm not going to like drink the Kool-Aid today. That sounds kind of creepy. Don't. Don't. In fact, God is patient. He's not quick, he's not quick to, to just punish us for no reason. He wants to be patient while we take our time to turn to him. And so my encouragement for you is to come back next week, come back for a few more weeks, meet some people, ask some questions. Some of our elders, which are our spiritual leaders at our church, will be available for you to talk to after church. Maybe you just want to set up some coffee with them and, and talk. But don't overlook the hour. Don't just let it go by, because God put a lot of work into that hour for you. It says in the book of Ephesians chapter 2 that God has prepared good works in advance for you to do. He wants you to be a part of his plan. And that hour might be here for you. What does this hour mean for you? A couple of things. Number one, it, it might be that uh, it just piqued your interest and you, and you just want to study more. That's great. Uh, on May 5th, we're going to have another session of Venture Basics, which is a class that we teach uh, a couple times a year. And our goal is to kind of go through what are the basics about God? Who is God? Did Jesus really raise from the dead? Because that's crazy. Is there any evidence to believe that? Yeah, there is. And we talk about it for about an hour. It's a lot of good stuff. Uh, is the Bible reliable? We get a lot of teaching from the Bible. Is it reliable? It's a really old book. Um, is the Bible reliable? And what does it mean to live as a Christian? So uh, maybe you want to sign up for that class. It's May 5th. If you want to know more about it now, you can just make a note on one of those connection cards. We'll make sure you get an email about it. Maybe it's piqued your interest and you just want to learn more. Maybe for you, it's your hour to accept the God's gift to you. And I want you to know that you can do that today. Uh, part of God's plan for you when you accept him is to uh, confess with your mouth that you believe it to make a decision to turn from your sinful life and the things that are in your past and, and put your eyes towards God, to be baptized into him. Uh, we've got a lot of different ways we can do that. If you're bold and want to do it at the ocean, we can do that. It might be a little chilly, but we've got other churches in town, and the YMCA will let us use uh, their pool or our baptistries at other churches. And you can say that as a, as a public declaration, declaration of this thing, I want to be united with God. And we're told in Scripture that when we do that, God's Holy Spirit that he promised to us will be sent to us in that moment. Your hour could be here today, don't let it pass by. Don't wait till next week. Maybe that's you. And maybe the last thing, maybe this, this is kind of falling on your ears and you kind of knew it. I knew the plan. I read the Bible. Then this is a great opportunity for us to be reminded of what a big deal it is. I was really pumped this week as I thought through this to be reminded of what a big deal God's plan is. 
And I was a little bit ashamed to think about how much I take it for granted. For me, a lot of it is just like, well, I go to church. Like, what else do you want me from me, God? <laughs> Shoot, I'd like, I get extra credit, right, because I like preach. I stand on the stage and everybody else just looks at me, right? That wasn't God's plan. God's plan was not for us to just gather together and have a club and like do cool things and maybe fix people's houses after hurricanes. Like, that's all great. God smiles upon that. He loves it. What he wants from us is our hearts turned to him. Our lives lived in his presence because you remember when he first created, he walked in the garden with man and woman in their presence. And that's what he wants to do with us today, daily, as I wake up, as I eat my meals, even as I make my mistakes. The book of John says that even if we're living in darkness in our life, we can drag that darkness into the light because then it'll be in full vision of the Father. He wants to see all of it. And as I lay me down to sleep, we can walk in the presence of God because of his spirit in our life. You guys who have been Christians for a while, let's not just do church. Let's live in the active presence of our Savior whose hour had come. Jesus says this, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your son may glorify you. Now that's cool because he's Jesus. And you're like, well, of course we want to glorify Jesus and let Jesus glorify God. But you know what? This is very similar to a teaching that Jesus gave to us as well. It's one of the passages that we read the most. It's actually the theme passage of DART ILM, the hurricane relief group we have. It's from Matthew chapter 5, verse 16. Jesus gives this very similar teaching. He says, in the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. You see the difference? Jesus says, Father, glorify your son so that I may glorify you. And he says to us, listen, let your light shine. Let God be glorified in your life so that when other people see the good deeds that you do, they will give glory to God in heaven. All of the work of the cross, all of the work of our life serves the purpose of giving glory to the Father. It's a beautiful thing. The hour has come. What does that mean for you? It may be the most exciting day of your life. Let me pray for us this morning.